Hello everyone, good evening, good day to all of you and welcome to the 81st live episode of Ask Abhijit. So let me greet all of you who are here. I can see Sampriti, play with Noob, Kashappa, Ankit, Divyang, Abhishek, Vinit, Krishnan, Pushan Patil, Suru, Omkar, Tabangna, Chitra, Aditya, Soni Singh, Animish, Abhishek, Ganpat, Asmita, Akash, Chiching, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Rohan, Smith, Venkata, Fist Wizard, Praful, Abhishek, Komal, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. It's great to be back as usual this fine weekend with all of you. So today I'm going to take questions that you have asked in the comments. So, and before we go, the, uh, go into that, uh, I hope you're enjoying the... Uh, podcast that, that I'm putting up on this channel. I have put up, so, I think, four so far and lots more are coming. So I hope you all are gaining some value from that. You have been listening to me talk on this channel for hundreds of hours. So maybe it's time for you to get gain a different kind of perspective. So the objective of all these podcasts that I'm putting up, that I will be putting up, is to offer you a different perspective, different uh, kind of knowledge, uh, to expose you to different kinds of people, guests from various parts of the world, and that sort of thing. So that's the reason why I'm doing it. Now, I see one comment very often, and I understand why it's there. So uh, when, see, typically the podcasts, the discussions, conversations are going to be in English on this channel. Sometimes they'll also be in Hindi. I will let the guests speak in whatever language they are most comfortable in. So one of the comments I get is, please do the podcast in this language or that language. If it's in English, they, there's a request to do it in Hindi. If it's in Hindi, there's a request to do it in English. So that, unfortunately, is not going to be possible. I cannot do a podcast in multiple languages. I cannot put up subtitles. It's an enormous amount of work to do subtitles. So it's going to be as is. My only objective is to offer you the most exposure to different ideas, different perspectives, different people, right? So I hope you gain some value from it. Do your best to learn from all these conversations. I am going to offer them in whatever language we're going to have the conversation in, and it's going to be as is. There's, it's not going to be available in multiple languages. Unfortunately, it's not feasible, right? So I hope it's providing you some value, and I'm going to bring in uh, people that you may not expect. Some people, I'm sure you'll be you'll be knowing them. And so I will certainly invite some people that you may have never heard of before. So I am a very curious person. I'm going to follow my curiosity. I'm interested in all kinds of fields and topics, science, geopolitics, history, culture, art, all kinds of things. So that's what you can expect going forward. right? So, so I hope you guys gain some good value from that. Okay, now with that said, let's get into the questions for today. Let's begin with question one, which is by Vishal. Why couldn't the two greatest Persian empires, the Achaemenid Empire and the Sasanian Empire, conquer Arabia? All right. So it's not that they could not conquer Arabia. It's that they chose not to conquer Arabia. What's the point of conquering an enormous desert where nothing grows, where there, where there is nothing of value, where there are some ragtag tribes and tribes people who have nothing to offer you. What's the point of conquering that? Right. If you look at the Arabian Peninsula, the present-day Saudi Arabia, it's just a desert. There's nothing of any value there. Today, of course, there is value, which we have discovered recently, which is the oil. But throughout human history, that was just 
a wasteland. It was just a desert. There was nothing of any sort of value there. So that's why the, these empires chose not to waste their time, effort, energy in conquering a desert. They were guaranteed not to meet any significant resistance there from the ragdag tribes there. But there was nothing of value there. So that's why they chose not to uh, conquer this region. And let me show, let me offer you a different perspective. If you uh, see this map, this is the map of the Mongol Empire at, at its largest extent. Now, the red part is the Mongol Empire. They had essentially conquered half the known world, more than half the known world. The thing is this, they had conquered more than half of Eurasia, more or less. The thing is this, what is striking is what they chose not to conquer, the Mongols. They chose, you can see, they chose for some reason, and I've given the reasons, they chose not to conquer India. They could have conquered it easily. Chinggis Khan could have conquered India easily, the greatest, richest uh, country in the world, but he chose not to. The other thing they did not conquer, they chose not to conquer, is Siberia, the frozen wasteland in the northern regions of Eurasia. They chose not to conquer it because there was nothing to gain by conquering that region. It's just an icy, frozen wasteland. So that uh, is a different perspective that also has the same reasons. There was nothing to conquer there. The reason for not invading India is different, entirely different. But So I hope that offers some sort of perspective as to why the Persians also chose not to conquer a wasteland like, like the Arabian Peninsula. Dungar Singh Chauhan says, which is the biggest star in the universe? Is it, is it Stephenson 218 or UY The biggest known star in the known universe is UY which is, it has a diameter, a radius. If you look at the radius of the star, it is approximately 1,700 times the radius, radius of the sun. It's enormous. It's, an, it's a hypergiant star. If you look at the star, and if it were at the center of the solar system where the sun is, then the photosphere of the star would exceed the radius of Jupiter. That's how enormous this star is, UYSQTI. So the biggest star in the known universe is UYSQTI. Okay, Ganpat Vagela says, uh, the government of India has replaced the Christian hymn Abide by me with a mere vatan ke logon. What are your views of the, on this? Are we really coming out, coming out of the colonial mindset? This is just a very small baby step in coming out of the colonial mindset. The entire governance machinery, the government system, the, the, the form of so-called democracy we have, the education system, everything is 100% colonial. So we are not coming out of the colonial mindset. But yeah, I, we, you can see some signs of that happening. So we are re rejecting this... Uh, this British colonial Christian funeral hymn, Abide By Me, and we are replacing it with an Urdu song, E Mere Vatan Ke Logon, which is another sad, tear-jerking song. Right. So the thing is this. Uh, uh, people are saying that uh, we are tampering with traditions. Well, this is nonsense. Traditions. What is a tradition? Tradition is something that comes out, that emerges from the soil of the country, from the grassroots of the country. A tradition is something that comes from the people. It is not something that is imposed on the people in a top-down manner. So this Christian hymn, Abide By Me, which was part of the army tradition, was imposed on the army in a top-down manner by the colonial masters, by the foreign occupiers of India. The soldiers who make up the Indian army come from the soil, from the grassroots of India. It is not their tradition. It has nothing to do with them. So it was something that was imposed upon us 
top down and it is something that has to be rejected all foreign impositions must be rejected and i'm glad the government has done this so it's a good move adil raza says what's your take on the tenure of manmohan singh as the prime minister was he the is he the best congress prime minister the country ever had in my opinion the best congress pm the best congress prime minister the country has ever had is most likely pv narsimha rao a man who gets no credit for the work he did right it is during his tenure that india was first the economy was first opened up liberalized and the socialistic uh, framework mechanism everything was rejected and, and replaced by a more open economy and that's where india started coming out of the nehruvian mindset and the nehruvian rate of growth uh, it is clearly because india had no option at the time india had gone essentially bankrupt so the world bank imf etc the western nations they they essentially armed twisted india into opening up the economy but whatever it is pv narsimha rao took the decision and he was in my opinion most likely the best congress prime minister we ever ever had manmohan singh was not even a real prime minister manmohan singh was a prime minister only in name he was in office he was never in power he never had any decision making ability when uh, foreign uh, heads of state was would visit india he would not be the one uh, talking with them one to one as the head of the nation it would it would be somebody somebody else who would take that position and manmohan singh would sit in a secondary position in the side on the sidelines so manmohan singh was most likely the worst prime minister we ever had right he was a remote controlled robot that's what he was be very frank so that's what i think of mr manmohan singh uh suga says on whose side is india should be india etc on the us side or the russian side see it's like this india should be on india's side nobody else's side and if our national interest converges with the national interest of either the us or russia then we can work with them to promote our shared interests that's how the world works the us is not on india's side or anybody's side the us is on on the us side the russians are on russia's side nobody else's side yes they will work with other nations they will cooperate with other, with other nations from time to time whenever the interests align but your interest is always your own interest your own national interest that comes before everything else there are no friendships in geopolitics there are no friendships in international affairs every nation promotes its own national interest that's actually how it should be india has never done that in the past but today india does it so india should be on india's side not this side that side we have no friends there are no permanent friends there are no permanent enemies there are no permanent partnerships there are no permanent adversaries in geopolitics it's all about what phase the world is going through so right now i think india has excellent relations has reasonably good relations with the us in some ways india most likely has warmer relations still with the russians in many ways but not the way it was before so that's how it is it's complicated but india is india should be on india's side only not anybody else's side there are no unconditional friendships or anything in geopolitics it's always give and take okay we have a bunch of questions here let's see uh, chetan says why was the air chief marshal of india a british person until 1954 it's because india never got its independence i have been saying this lots of times india is still not truly a free country india is still a colonized country india still doesn't have complete autonomy in, in its foreign policy uh, 
India still has to bend to the will of certain very powerful countries. And uh, it okay, so so that's why the Air Chief Marshal of India was a British person till 1954, and some other officials were there until the mid 1950s or late 1950s who were British. So India was still essentially a British occupied country. Uh, Ishan says, is it true that the Information Bureau IB provided intelligence about Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose to the British intelligence after independence? Do you think that they still supply sensitive information about our country's internal matters to the British government? Yes, the Information Bureau and the and the evidence is out now. It is undeniable evidence. The Indian Information Bureau, Intelligence Bureau, was providing intelligence about our guy, our, our great freedom fighter, Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose, to the British intelligence even after India's supposed independence. India's intelligence bureau was still subsidiary to Scotland Yard, was still essentially under the control of Scotland Yard in many ways, uh, even after independence. That's what happened under the prime ministership of Sri Jawaharlal Nehruji, the great Panditji. Uh, Sovik says, Anuj Dar was saying that there is proof that there, was a sec- there were secret clauses in the transfer of power agreement between the British and Nehru, only one clause has been made public thus far. What could be the possible secret clauses from your point of view? I cannot speculate, but it is clear that there were secret clauses in the transfer of power agreement. India, 1947, 15th August was not Independence Day. It was Dominion Status Day. On 15th of August, 1947, when the British flag went down, Indian flag went up, etc. The Indian head of state was still the King of England. That, happened, that went on until 1950. And even after 1950 or 51 or whatever it was, India's, uh, like like we mentioned, like it is mentioned, the, the Air Chief Marshal of India was British and so on and so forth. Our first, uh, what was it called? What was Mountbatten's role? He was still the Viceroy or whatever and so on. So the British machinery, governance machinery, still had its claws deep into India well after our so-called independence. I don't know what other secret clauses were there. There are all kinds of rumors, allegations, etc. I, without evidence, I cannot speculate on them. But it is why is India still a member of the so-called Commonwealth of Nations? The Commonwealth of Nations is a club of losers. It is a losers club. It is the bunch of nations that were occupied forcibly by the British and whose economies and cultures and everything was destroyed by the British. Now, even the Americans were under British occupation, right? They fought a war of independence and they won their independence through violent means. Now, why is the US not part of the British Commonwealth, even though they were also occupied by the British? It's because the Americans have some self-respect and they are a far greater country in all ways than the UK. But India, for some reason, is still a member of the Commonwealth of Nations, the Losers Club. So it is. It it tells you that India still sees itself as a subsidiary in some way to the British, to the UK, to the to the British Crown, possibly. So I don't know what the clauses are. It needs to be whatever the clauses were. They need to be rejected, and India needs to properly become an independent country with an independent foreign policy, independent internal policy. We still don't have that, and I don't blame the current government for that. It is a consequence of whatever happened in the past seventy years. It is the Congress policies that have led us to the position that we are in, right? And the government of India today is dealing with the repercussions and the legacy of all those policies and everything that it had been it has been handed over in 2014. Now, recently we see that uh, just a couple of days ago, the statue of Nevitaji Subhashandra Bose has been put in New Delhi in Rajpath, where the statue of the English king used to be there. 
that essentially amounts in a way in a symbolic way to a declaration of proper independence because the west sees subhash chandra bose as a war criminal somebody who sided with the nazis and the japanese right the funny thing is the west are even bigger war criminals the nazis did not nuke a country the west did that but because they won it's all fine it's all fair so that's nonsense india needs to look at the world from its own perspective subhash chandra bose allied with the nazis and the japanese because they were the enemies of the occupiers of india the ones who had destroyed india and killed more than 100 million indians so he may have allied with germany or japan so what he did it for india and we need to honor that so you know these are the things india needs to properly decolonize india needs to properly become an independent country it will still take time but we need to grow economically very fast very rigorously robustly and we need to grow militarily in proportion with the growing economy and then maybe in 10 20 years we will become properly independent so it's a work in progress spy wolf says namaste sir please pick my question this time did barack obama is <clears throat> excuse me is barack obama really great as he was projected to be and in his tenure the us became a champion in wokeism or woke state barack obama is a mediocre person all he was good at is talking he was good at talking he was good at oratory he was good at uh, giving wonderful speeches what did he do actually nothing i think he's one of the most mediocre presidents the us has ever had but he was great at virtue signaling and speaking that's why he's regarded as very good and as great or whatever yes during his time the us became a championship champion in wokeism and all that you know the relationship between the us media and donald trump the us media is entirely almost entirely controlled by the democratic party there are two parties in the us the republicans and the democrats the democrats are the liberals the republicans are the conservatives essentially the democrats control the media donald trump was a republican president he was in office he was never in power throughout his four year tenure as the president of the us he was constantly mercilessly attacked assaulted abused and trolled by the us media on the behest of the of the democratic party because the democrats control the media the media is a paid institution in the us whoever funds the media controls the media and gets to decide what they say so that's how it is third why does the us media love jim joe biden so much they don't love joe biden so much they are controlled by the democrats they are paid to say things good that are good about the democrats and that's why they are positive about joe biden and we all know <laughs> what mr joe biden is like so that's how it is that's the state of the us media rudra says do you believe in the conspiracy theory that a few thousand years ago india faced nuclear bomb destruction in north india somewhere near rajasthan present day pakistan temporary nation which made india weak and indians decided never to use that sort of weapons again and to be extremely good and kind i will believe anything for which there is evidence right you have you can i don't believe things based on my intuition and my feelings and emotions and all that i believe something if there is evidence for it if there is no evidence for something i will not believe it or i will wait until there is evidence right is there evidence that there was any kind of nuclear uh, explosion or or event in india anywhere in india if there is evidence where is the evidence there is no evidence no undeniable evidence or no tangential evidence even of any nuclear event in india's past anywhere in the indian subcontinent show me the evidence show me some place where the asi goes with the geiger muller counter and finds that there is ancient residual radiation here there is no such place 
if there is i am happy to believe it in the absence of evidence i will say there is no such there is no evidence for this theory so as of today in the absence of evidence i do not believe these theories all right karthik shrinivas says can you please speak about the black hole of Heinze 210 galaxy? Recently, the Hubble telescope found stars that were being created out of this black hole. So let me explain what this is. This uh, galaxy is about 600, 6,000, I don't know, some that sort of uh, distance away from Earth. 600 or 6,000, I forget. Give or take a magnitude of 10 orders of magnitude, one order of magnitude. But it's that sort of distance away in terms of light years from our solar system. Okay. Now, it's not a massive galaxy. It's it's what's called a dwarf galaxy. It's called a dwarf starburst galaxy. So it's a dwarf galaxy because it's small. It's tiny compared to Milky Way, our, to, compared to our galaxy, the Milky Way, or to our neighboring galaxy, Andromeda. It's small. Heinze 210 is a small dwarf galaxy. And it's called a starburst galaxy because it shows an unusual, unusually high rate of star formation, new stars being born there. So recently, about 10 years ago or so, they found that there is a black hole at the center of this dwarf galaxy, which is very interesting, actually. And I'm not going to why it's interesting, but there is a black hole at the center of this galaxy, even at the center of this dwarf galaxy. And it's a smallish black hole. Uh, what's the size of this black hole? Maybe a million solar masses or so, something like that. I don't remember exactly. Look it up if you want. So it's about a million or so solar masses, roughly, give or take. It's a, it's a smallish black hole. It's not a monster, supermassive black hole like we have at the center of the Milky Way or other galaxies. It's a moderately sized black hole. And what we find is that this black hole is sucking in gas from its surrounding regions. And when gas swirls into a black hole, sometimes, or not sometimes, often what happens is that it is redirected by the magnetic fields of the black hole and ejected in two different directions from the polar axes of the of the rotation, the axis of rotation of the black hole. So this gas is being ejected into the direction, directions from the polar regions of the black hole at very high speeds, but not incredibly high speeds. When you have a supermassive black hole, what happens is that this gas in the form of plasma is ejected almost at the speed of light, staggeringly high speeds, stagger, staggeringly high velocities. In the case of this Heinze 210, it is going at about a million kilometers per hour or so. It's not very fast, right? And then this gas is being ejected and it is colliding with other regions that, that are already rich in gas. And this collision, it's like you, are, you have a garden hose of water and you are uh, pouring the water from the hose onto uh, a body of water which already exists. So that's what's happening. There's a big pool of gas that already exists in this galaxy and this ejected gas from the black hole is impacting that and this interaction between the pool of gas and the jet of gas from the black hole is leading to a very high rate of new of formation of new stars so it's not the black hole that is creating stars but it is the uh, ejection of gas from the black hole which is interacting with other path of the, of the galaxy where there is already a large amount of gas that is creating new stars at a very high rate so that's why it's interesting this galaxy is interesting right so indirectly you could say that black holes actions are contributing to the high rate of star formation in this galaxy that's why it's called a starburst galaxy in, a, in its a dwarf galaxy so that's what i can say in in brief about this galaxy very interesting astrophysical uh, phenomenon look it up if you're interested
Okay. What else we have? Um, Karthik says, why is the steady state theory and the pulsating theory ignored? Hmm. <laughs> Can we ever come to a conclusion about the origin of the universe? Okay, good question. Uh, let's talk about the steady state theory. The pulsating, I'm not very... Let's, let's talk about the steady state theory. It was once one of the major theories of the origin of the universe. So what the steady state theory says is that there is no beginning or end to the universe. The universe has always been the way it is. It's always been around. And yes, there is an expansion in the universe. The universe is expanding. And therefore, new material, new matter, new mass energy is constantly being created somehow in the universe. And there's never going to be an end of the universe. The universe is going to expand infinitely into the future. And it never began also. So there is this steady state theory, which was uh, a major theory in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. I'm not sure about 30s, 40s, 50s, maybe even 60s, for sure. Uh, many prominent physicists like Herman Bondi, etc. were big proponents of that. I believe an Indian physicist called uh, Jayant Narlikar also and Fred Hoyle, etc. These guys were uh, pro proponents of this theory, the steady state theory. Now, today the theory is no longer accepted as a valid theory. And why is that? It's not ignored. See, science is not about democracy. We will give all theories equal importance. No, 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 no. Science is not about democracy. Dep democracy doesn't work in science. Science is, see, it's like this. People come up with theories. There is, there is a problem, which there is a question, an open question. What is the origin of the universe and ultimate fate of the universe? So we have a, a certain amount of data. So based on the data, various scientists, physicists, etc. come up with different theories that can explain what we see. Now, Once you formulate a theory, that theory has to make certain predictions and it has to match observational evidence. If it is able to match, uh, able to match the observational evidence, then the theory seems to be valid. If it is able to make predictions that are validated in the future, then the theory is valid until new evidence comes up. That's how it works. A theory is constantly tested. The general theory of relativity, which was put forth in 1915, is still being rigorously tested even today. Right? So the steady state theory says that there is the expansion of the universe. It goes on forever and so on and so forth. The Big Bang theory, which was the rival theory, said that the universe began as a singularity. It There was this uh, phase of inflation, expansion, and it predicted something called cosmic microwave background radiation, which is the afterglow of the Big Bang. And it also predicted that it would have a black body spectrum, which I will not explain right now. You can look it up if you're interested. The steady state theory made no such prediction. It said there would be some kind of uh, background radiation, but it predicted different characteristics and a different origin for that. And when CMBR, Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, was discovered, it exactly matched the predictions of the Big Bang Theory and it invalidated the steady state theory totally. So the major uh, impediment or, or, or the major piece of evidence, massive piece of evidence that completely invalidates the steady state theory is the existence of the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is anisotropic and all that, but it also has these inhomogeneities and it shows a, bla a black body spectrum. And that completely demolishes the steady state theory. And that's why people ignore it with very good reason. Science is not democratic. Science is about evidence.
in the scientific method. That's how it works. Uh, the second question is, can we ever come to a conclusion about the origin of the universe? Well, we have a reasonably good framework model of the origin of the universe, the Big Bang Theory, which all, which obviously is not a complete theory. There are still many questions about it. Did the universe begin as a singularity or was there something else? And was there something before that? And so on and so forth. There are lots of questions that are not answered. But this is the best model that we have as of today. I think as long as humanity exists, questions will exist. We are not gods. We have not seen the beginning of the universe. But what we can do is to strive to understand, the, to keep on making progress in understanding the universe better. So that's what I can say. Chiching says, how are tribes formed? Why are there so many tribes in the far east region of India? For instance, there are 16 tribes in Nagaland. So let's understand what a tribe is. What is the definition of a tribe? The, the word tribe is used very liberally and very loosely these days by historians and various people. So, uh, for instance, they talk about the Rig Vedic tribes. Those were not tribes. Those were not tribes. You great historians don't use the word tribe for it. Let me explain what a tribe is. A tribe is a small collection of individuals, a small isolated collection of individuals who don't have a high, um, a highly developed society. That is the official technical definition of a tribe. You can look it up on in dictionaries and various uh, sociological, anthropological texts, etc. A tribe is a small group of individuals who are isolated from other societies for a very long time and who don't have a very highly developed society. That's what a tribe is. So typically tribes are what the West would call primitive societies. I don't call them primitive, but that's what the, the Western definition is. Right. So let's talk about the Rig Vedic tribes. Those were not tri tribes. Those were clans. Okay, I'm just giving perspective. I will come to, I'll come to the Far East of India. The Rig Vedic so-called tribes, everybody calls them tribes. They were not tribes. They were not isolated groups of individuals. Those were clans. A clan is an extended family group. And they did not have a backward, rudimentary, primitive culture. They had a high civilization. So the Rig Vedic so-called tribes are actually clans, Rig Vedic clans. Now, when it comes to the Far East region of India, it's not just the Far East of India, the so-called Northeast of India. It's the extended region around that. So even if you go to, if you cross the boundary, the border into Myanmar, Burma, you will see the same system. You will, uh, for a very long time, it, it looks like we had these, see, this is a thickly forested region. There are hills and uh, the Himalayan foothills, etc. And therefore, the people who lived there, uh, they often lived in very small groups. So maybe a couple of hundred here, then 30, 50 kilometers, 100 kilometers away, another group of maybe a couple of thousand and so on. So these are tribes. Now, like Chiching says, there are 16 tribes in Nagaland. I don't remember the exact number, but I'm sure she's right. So if you look at the history of these uh, uh, tribes, so the who are now called the Naga tribes, a hundred years ago, during the British occupation of India, or maybe 150 years ago, these tribes had very specific characteristics. They all spoke different languages. They could not even understand each other's languages. They had their own customs and traditions, which were different, significantly different from the customs and traditions of the other neighboring tribes. And they clearly had been living in isolation, more or less, for a very long time. They were obviously not on an island like in the Andaman, so there was the always the possibility of them going 
to other parts of the world but it seems like it looks like they have been there for a very long time so none of our great historians have done any significant research into the history the origins of the people of this region especially the the so called naga tribes so the the word naga is a recent uh, creation i think it's the british who created this word naga an umbrella umbrella term to to you know we bind them together into one ethnic group they're not one ethnic ethnic group there are the tankus there are the are uh, the the mao there are the um, what are the other tribes there are lots of different tribes there the the marings the 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 uh, the kom and so many so many other other tribes if i don't remember all the names right now i can't recall them all but they all have their distinct culture their indigenous culture and and so on so the reason why there are so many tribes or isolated social groupings communities in the far east region of india is because of the terrain of the region it's because it is thickly forested even today you will see extensive forestation there and there are so many hills and all it's it's hills and valleys so it's often very difficult to travel far and once you find once a social um, uh, grouping finds a region that's reasonably habitable you can do cultivation etc zoom uh, cultivation whatever you call it the terrace farming etc then you settle down there and you stay there you stay put the climate is good there the soil is fertile the only thing is you're kind of stuck there because of the terrain and all that you know so that's the reason why you have so many isolated social groups or tribes in this region of course you also had kingdoms you had the tripuris you had the maithes the manipuris the manipur was a very was a very massive extensive kingdom it included all of nagaland parts of burma and so on so that's all history it's always been ebbing and flowing expanding and contracting the ahoms the the maithes the, the the tripuris and so on so these were kingdoms you could even say empires at in certain points in time but you also had all these tribal groupings who were more or less autonomous they had their own culture their own rich individual indigenous traditions and culture religion whatever uh, kind of it's been wiped out but that's the kind of uh, history this region has seen so that's how tribes are formed a group of people who kind of gets isolated in in a region and for whatever reason they don't develop a very high a uh, sophisticated culture because of the small size of the so- of the social grouping more more or less so it's an interesting anthropological sociological uh, research topic and phenomenon but very interesting question that chiching is asked so it's something that if you are interested you can certainly uh, delve much deeper into Pushpendra says, uh, "What did the U.S. What did America do right to become a superpower?" And Arnav says, "It was the Europeans who colonized most of the world. How is America a superpower today?" <laughs> Good question, gentlemen. Understand one thing. Yes, it is the Europeans who colonized most of the world, and among the Europeans, it was the British who were able to colonize most of the world, the biggest empire the world has ever seen. and so on so forth they call it but today they have shriveled up and shrunk and they are essentially nobodies today the, the uk so what happened to all that power in the empire well, let me explain something the british empire never really died it reincarnated its reincarnation is the american empire you we see america as the parad- parad- paragon of democracy human rights all that america is actually an empire the united states is the successor empire of the british raj of the british empire that's what it is of course they will not call themselves an empire uh, 
they will talk about the rules based international order and uh, democracy and human rights and liberal values and all that nonsense it is a nice it's a nice covering to wear below which you have the imperial face so the united states is essentially an empire today and how do we know it's an empire we call it superpowers these days the united states is the sole superpower in the world like velina chakarova explained in the previous podcast it is the only country that qualifies to be a superpower for two reasons first of all their currency is the global reserve currency the us dollar all the financial institutions are controlled by them the international monetary fund imf the world bank and so on right they control the entire global order the so called rules based global order they control all the major institutions in the world and they are the only country that can intervene militarily anywhere in the world at half an hour's notice or less than half an hour's notice so that is the hallmark of an empire so the americans understand are an empire you can call it a superpower you can use whatever euphemism you want to use for it they are the successor state of the british empire now what did they do right the americans are the descendants of the british the british colonialists colonized the world they colonized india massacred indians 100 million indians they plundered everything of value out of india they tried to do the same with china they succeeded to a to a certain extent they destroyed africa completely and they did the same in australia occupied conquered and occupied the land and stole the land from the natives they did the same thing in new zealand and they did the same thing in north america and the two success two two states that are the outcome of the british colonization and french colonization to some extent are the united states and canada so what did the americans do right first of all the thing they do right did right was the stolen entire continent from the natives they massacred the natives it is believed about 100 million american indians or native americans may have died there is no evidence for these numbers because nobody has done any research it's supposed it is something to be kept secret so this stole an entire continent an enormous land mass let's take a look at the land mass shall we uh, let me share my screen yes uh, one second let me uh, share as always we go to a map where's the map here's the map um 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 um, um. okay let's remove the question look at the size of this continent they stole this entire continent from the natives they marginalized killed massacred genocided the natives and took over the entire continent look at the size of this country they got this for free they got this for free that is the first thing they did right right that's the first thing the americans did right uh, what is the second thing that they, they did right uh, so firstly the first step was to steal the entire continent from the natives kill the natives marginalize them make them invisible the second thing they did was they needed to farm the land till the land exploit the land all that now that's hard work so what do you do you bring in slaves to do that work for you so they crossed the atlantic went to uh, west africa this region here the western sahara senegal sierra leone mauritania mali morocco etc the the black african countries and they brought in shiploads of slaves in the transatlantic slave trade and these slaves then did all the hard work for the americans for free and that's how they built up this enormous country and this huge economy on the on the backs of the genocide of one people the native americans and the enslavement of another people 
the African Americans, the black people of Africa. That's how they built up this enormous country, enormous economy. Then in the Second World War, they intervened. They had uh, so much, uh, so many resources. They intervened and they won the Second World War. And then the military industrial complex took over. And that's what created the US empire. It's a long story, but that kind of explains how the Americans became a superpower in very, 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 very brief. It's a long, longer story than that, obviously. So it's something that you may want to uh, look into in detail if you if you wish. All right. Another question is from Mona Lisa. Please explain the connection between the Irish goddess Danu and the Rigvedic goddess Danu. Now the European historians, etc., they will say there's no connection. Nothing, nothing doing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. It's totally different. And they try to invent certain eto eto etymological roots for the Irish goddess Danu that it may... Uh, it may uh, originate in some proto-Latin word, etc. But there is no connection between India, the Indian Danu and the Rigvedic and the Irish goddess Danu. Now let's understand the real history. So in the Rigveda, which is the world's oldest known literature, the world's oldest known literature and a snapshot of the oldest known society and culture and civilization in the world is the Rigveda. In the Rigveda, there is the mention of this goddess. A river goddess, an Asura goddess called Danu, Devi Danu. She is still worshipped in Bali, for instance, as a river goddess, Devi Danu. Now, so you had this goddess, Asura goddess, Danu, in the Rig Veda. There is significant uh, mentions about this goddess in the literature, in the Rig Veda. Now, she had apparently a hundred children, Asuras. Okay. And these were the children of Danu the sons of Danu, the Danavas, the Danavas. The Danavas were Asuras, the gods were the, uh, the Devas. And there was a conflict in, in, in the records between the Devas and the Danavas or the, 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 or the, or the Devas and the Asuras. And the Asuras were defeated and they were exiled from Aryavarth, from, from Jambudweep, from India. So they were sent into exile, according to the story. And then they... Uh, then they are no longer mentioned. So they fade out of civilized of the of the memory of the civilized people, the people of India. So that seems to be the end of the story of the Danavas in Indian literature, in our literary records. But is it so? So let us go into that a little bit more. So let me share an image. Now, what we find is if we go and look at the map of Europe and the major rivers of Europe, hmm? if you look at that, we find a whole bunch of rivers. The Don, the Dniper, the Danube, the Danube, right? Danube, Dniper, Dniester, Don, Donets, Dunayek, Dvina, Dogava, Disna, a whole bunch of European rivers are named after this goddess after after Danu, the root word, if you look at it linguistically, if you do a proper linguistic analysis, you find that the root word of all these European rivers, which are found in Eastern and Central Europe, the root word of the names of all these European rivers is Danu. Right? That is curious. You also find that the word for river in the Scythian language is Danu. In the uh, in certain other ancient languages, the word for fluid and water and drop, 
was also Danu. So there's always this connection with water and rivers. And this, the fact that you find all these European rivers in Central Europe and Eastern Europe that are named after the same goddess Danu, all named after one goddess, it seems to demonstrate a gradual westward expansion of a group of people who somehow who somehow worshipped a goddess, a river goddess named Danu, and whichever new river they encountered, they, they gave the name of their goddess to that river. And eventually the names were distorted and that's how they became Dawn, Danube, Dyster, etc. today. Right. So it is clear that there is a curious pattern of a westward expansion of a group of, group of people from the east who all worshipped a goddess called Danu, a river goddess. So the question is, where did these people end up? These uh, people who worshipped goddess Danu, where did they end up? This is where they ended up. So in Irish mythology, the mother of the Irish people is a goddess called Danu, who is a river goddess. Again, she's a river goddess, the same pattern. And the mythological ancestors of the Irish people are called the Tuatha de Danan, which means the peoples of the goddess Danu. Now tell me this is a coincidence. Anybody who says this is a coincidence needs to have their head examined. It is clear that this demonstrates a westward expansion in very deep antiquity of an ancient population of Indians. We know that such expansions have happened. It is also mentioned in the Puranas, Rigvedas, etc. In the Rigveda, uh, latest, later Vedic texts like the Bodhayana, Shrota Sutra and so many other texts. It is also now demonstrated through the science of genetics. Look at my podcast with Dr. Neeraj Rai. So, this tells you what was the connection between the Irish goddess Danu and the Rigvedic goddess Danu, who is the, which, which are the same deity, the same goddess, no doubt about it. Right, good question. All right, Balram says, how can India get into a position to give resistance to invisible hands like the way the Chinese and the Russians do? How much time it might take? Why is the Russian? Why is Russia able to scare the U.S. and Europe despite being a low economy? Let's take the second question first. Why is the Why are the Russians able to scare the Americans and Europe despite having a small economy? Well, the economy is not the only factor when it comes to computing, calculating national power. Economy is one factor. You also look at the size of the military, the capability of the military, the number of nuclear weapons you have, and the attitude of the leadership. How willing is the leadership to use hard power, military power? Russia has shown its willingness in the past decade, two decades, to use military power whenever it is needed. Look at the Chechnyan wars. Look at the intervention in Georgia. Look at the intervention in Crimea, Ukraine. They have never shied away from using hard, a heavy hand and hard military power. That's point number one. And they have a massive military machine. They may have a small economy, but their military is what is, is the legacy they got from the USSR. And it's a massive and very powerful military. They have a very good uh, uh, military, uh, what do you call it? Military industrial complex. They manufacture their own weapons. They don't need to import weapon systems from abroad. They manufacture everything at home. 
So that is a massive advantage they have. And the most massive advantage they have is that they have the world's largest nuclear arsenal. They have more nukes than the Americans. And they have the capability to deploy and deliver those nuclear packages anywhere in the world within half an hour's time. That is why the whole world is scared of the Russians. And that's why the whole world, in a way, respects Russia for its hard power. Now, the other question is, how can India get into a position to give resistance to invisible hands the way the Chinese do and the Russians do? So let's look at the attitude and the practices and the policies of the Chinese and the Russians. Do the Chinese have an education system based in English, in the English language? No. Do they have a legal system based on Western values, on Western principles? No. Do they have a constitution that is based in Western values? No. Is their governance system based on the Western values? No. They have their own way of doing things. And they are proud of it. They are not colonized. The same goes for the Russians. Their education is in the Russian medium. Their system of governance is Russian in nature. You may call it whatever you like. You can call it autocracy, dictatorship, doesn't matter. It is based, grounded in Russian values and Russian history. India, on the other hand, is like a client state of the US or the West. Its education system, its governance system, its constitution, its laws, its bureaucracy, everything is a continuation of the British Raj. It's like we were never free. And that's why Indian people have no confidence, no self-confidence, no self-respect. So that's why India is in no position to resist the invisible hand. We, You may not know where the invisible hand originates from, but what I can tell you is that this invisible hand speaks English. Right? So if India wants to become truly independent in the real sense of the world, it has to just look at the past 30, 40, 50 years of history in China and Russia and how have they gone about doing things. They have an independent foreign policy. They have their, Everything is independent properly. So that's what India can do. You know, Rush, the, the Chinese are our enemies. There's no doubt about that. They want India to be destroyed. But there is always something to learn from your enemies. Learn from anybody. It is perfectly fine to learn something of value even from your enemies. So that's what India needs to do. All right. <clears throat> Why are African lions and elephants bigger than Asian lions and elephants? Okay. Valid question. Okay, let me give some other examples. Yeah. Um, 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 one second. Let me go to... So you are right. The African lion is larger than the Asian lion, Indian lion. And African elephants are typically larger than... Uh, Asian elephants and lions. Now look at African crocodiles. You know, the African crocodile, for instance, is smaller than the Indian crocodile called the garial. The garial, the Indian garial crocodile, is way larger and more massive than the African crocodile. Why is that? Why is an Indian crocodile so much larger than the African crocodile? Even if you look at the Indian seawater crocodile, they call it the Indo-Pacific crocodile or something, it is about, it can grow to a length of about six or seven meters. That is a massive, gigantic animal. The Indian saltwater crocodile, which you find on the east coast of India. That is way more massive than the African crocodiles. Now let's look at the, um, if you look at the African buffalo, 
and you compare that with the Indian gore. This is the Indian gore. It is a massive beast. The Indian gore is a truly, truly massive beast. If you look at this animal, this beast, which is found in northern, eastern India, etc., it stands as tall as me at, as the, at the shoulder. It is six feet tall at its shoulder. Can you see how massive this beast is? This is an absolute unit. It is way more massive than any African uh, buffalo, right? Then, if you if you if you uh, look at various Indian serpents, for example, the Indian cobra, king cobra, it dwarfs any African snake. So you know, it, evolution is something that goes in a variety of directions. Certain animals are larger in a, in a certain continent, but in a different continent, some other elephants may be larger. There are so many factors, multiple factors and parameters that go into the course of evolution of a certain species. So in the case of some species, like the two examples you've given, African elephants and lions, they are larger than the ones that we have here. But there are so many species of animals in the Indian subcontinent that are much larger than similar species in Africa. So it's all because of the long history over millions of years of evolution of a species. There is no one reason for any such thing. There are thousands of parameters that go into evolution. So I hope that gives you some kind of context that, uh, to this uh, question. Bhuvanesh says, I have one complaint. You pick questions that were answered many times before. Please try to pick this question on the future. Say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> the thing is this. See, let me explain. You are right. You are right. Your, your uh, observation is based in accuracy. It, it's, it, it's accurate. It's, ba it's based in real data. Uh, the thing is this. I have taken certain questions multiple times. It is true. Why do I do that? Because there are new subscribers and new viewers who come in every week. Six months ago, I had less than half the subscribers I have today. And so new subscribers have come in and they may not have seen my past videos. I have tried my best to put hundreds of short clips on this channel. As you know, they are all there. But people may not be aware of the, of the questions I have answered in the past. And certain questions are questions that everybody has. And they keep asking this question. So there are certain questions I see every week. So some of these questions I will pick up multiple times, even in the future, because there is, these are important questions. And people, when they ask that question, I, I think it deserves to be answered. And therefore, based on my judgment, I may pick some questions multiple times. It may, you. I'm sure you are one of my uh, older viewers, and I really appreciate that. So that's just an explanation of why I, I pick certain questions multiple times. Now let's take your question, Bhuvanesh. Um, can a living planet exist? We know about the fungi, mycelium net network in forests as acting as a single entity. If we extend this to the extreme, is it possible for an alien complex life to take over an entire planet, uh, aka the Kardashev type 1, and act as a single conscious entity drawing power from its host planet's core and from its host star? See, Bhumnesh, we only have the example of one planet. We only know of one place where there is life. So that's the only example that we have. But if we extrapolate the various life forms that we find on our planet and extrapolate it to a larger massive space scale onto a hypothetical alien planet, then why is it? It is certainly possible. 
there is nothing in the rules of biology physics chemistry etc that would prevent such a thing from happening so it is certainly conceivable that a certain uh, hypothetical species or or life form may be possibly able to colonize an entire planet act as a single conscious entity and draw its energy from the molten core of the planet and possibly even from the energy of the host star in the form of something maybe like photosynthesis or something it is certainly possible there is nothing in the laws of nature that would say this is impossible so yes hypothetically it may most likely exist somewhere in the universe it is said by some people that the universe is so vast that anything you can imagine in your imagination most likely exists somewhere you may never actually see an example of that in real life because the universe is so vast and we may we can never travel that far or even receive information from that far but if you can imagine something it may actually exist somewhere somewhere in the universe in the vastness of the universe so to answer your question yes why not it is certainly possible hypothetically that such a thing such a planet may exist all right praveen says do germans experience an inferiority complex due to their nazi history does it still exist i'm not sure how many of you have read the autobiography of arnold schwarzenegger you know arnold schwarzenegger right the great uh, hollywood actor former bodybuilder mr universe seven times eight times seven times i think one of the greatest bodybuilders of all time one of the greatest action movie stars in hollywood of all time and so on he was born in austria he grew up in austria as a teenager as a young man he moved to the united states eventually became a big star there changed his nationality and so on now if you read the autobiography of arnold schwarzenegger it's called total recall he speaks about this particular thing this inferiority complex that germans had when he was a child the generation of his father that was the generation that had been beaten in the second world war they had lost the second world war they had participated on behalf of the nazi side and they had lost they were beaten they were humiliated and there was this sense of the fact that we are a defeated people and then there was also this sense of deep shame that was imposed upon the german people for whatever atrocities and horrific acts the nazis had done so that was uh, the german people were held guilty by by extension you know inherited guilt there is some marxist term in that collective guilt or something so that was imposed upon the upon the people of germany and nationalism patriotism etc was taboo for a very long time in germany i remember in 2000 which which uh, european cup was it football i think it was 2006 it was finally in 2006 that the germans the german people gathered the courage to wave german flags when their football team was doing quite well in the european uh, european champion euro 2002 or 2006 i think when their coach was jurgen klinsmann i think they reached the semi finals or something but they did very well so that's when the first glimpses of german patriotism were visible for the first time in more than 50 60 years and and much of their history has been denied to them i have spoken about this several months before in the past one of the greatest heroes uh, the freedom fighter armenius who defeated the roman empire in the year which year was it 10 ad somewhere there 
in the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest, one of the greatest Germans of all time, the liberator of Germany, his story was whitewashed out of German textbooks. So when the 2000th anniversary of this battle came, came around, uh, in the beginning of the 21st century, just a few years ago, there was no celebration in Germany because nobody knew about this. Because the German school textbooks, history textbooks, college textbooks did not mention Arminius at, at all. So this was all suppressed. And yes, so, so there is this uh, sense, I suppose it, is, it may still exist in Germany, that they are in some way a defeated people. Germany is still under US occupation, by the way. So there is that also. So yes, it's a complex history. And there is this, uh, this sense of collective guilt that has been imposed upon the German people. Anytime a German speaks too much, they are shushed and shut down. They are given epithets like Adolf and so on. So this thing is there, yes. So yes, the Germans do experience this. I am sure I am not the right person to speak on behalf of the German people, but I, I am aware of the fact that this is indeed a thing. Okay, two questions. What is India's? What are India's geopolitical options if Russia attempts to invade Ukraine and NATO engages against them? We are waist deep with Russia in defense and trade deals. Second question by Nand Gopan. If Russia invades Ukraine, will the US sanctions that follow severely affect India's interests, especially in the backdrop of the S-400 purchase? And if so, how should we deal with Russia thereafter? The answer is very simple. How should India deal with any country depends on India's national interest, not on the national interest of other countries. Now, if the Americans squeeze India and threaten to impose sanctions, then it may affect India's national interest. And the Americans are way more powerful than us, so they, they are in a position to do it if they want. So India has to be governed by a sense of what its long-term national interest is, and it should do whatever it takes to safeguard and promote India's national interest. So hypothetically, if in the coming days, weeks, months, the Russians invade Ukraine, there's a war of some sort, NATO engages against them, then the Americans may try to prevent India from gaining, from, from uh, completing the purchase of the S-400 system. And they may try to impose sanctions upon India if India refuses and so on. So this may complicate matters. I would not say that India is waist deep with Russia in defense and trade deals. We are also buying, purchasing uh, weaponry and other systems from the US. As you know, we have purchased uh, the Poseidon planes and so on from the Americans. There's a lot of cooperation between India and the US as well. So India has to see what the Americans, uh, what the American attitude is in such a case, in such an eventuality. India has to try and impress upon the Americans to look upon this from a larger perspective. The real enemy is not India or Russia. The real enemy is China. You may have a beef or something with the Russians. That is your problem. But in the long run, we need to worry about China. And if you try to prevent us from gaining, from acquiring this weapon system, it's going to hurt you also in the long run when it comes to a future potential possible conflict with China. So we need to impress this upon the Americans. And let's see how it goes. It all depends on the diplomacy and leadership that we exhibit from our side. 
Okay, <clears throat> this is a question by Shong Jina, but it is not by Shong Jina, it is by Soham Chaudhary. My good friend Soham Chaudhary has asked this question about 700 or 800 times. Copy paste, copy paste, copy paste. My, my dear friend, I requested you once, please don't spam the comments, but you have kept on doing it by creating new accounts. So I will take your question, but please, Soham, in the future, please do not spam the comments. Now, this is uh, the reason I was not taking this question is because I have answered this multiple times. But let's do it one more time, just to refresh everyone's memory. So the question is, the question by Soham Chaudhary is, why did Chinggis Khan's descendants such as Berke Khan, etc., the successor state of the Mongol Empire, the Il Khanate, the Chagatai Khanate, the Golden Horde, etc., why did they abandon Buddhism and adopt Islam? The only exception is the Yuan dynasty, which did not abandon Buddhism. The successor state of the Mongol Empire is the Yuan dynasty and the Khanate in Mongolia. The Il Khanate, the Chagatai Khanate, the Golden Horde, etc. became Turkic states in the future. They were no longer in Mongolia. Point number one. Right? Now, you will find that descendants of Chinggis Khan, other Khans who conquered Russia, for instance, Siberia and Russian principalities, they adopted Christianity also. But if you look at Mongolia today, if you look at China today, there is no Islam there. Mongolia is almost exclusively Buddhist Tengrist. It's a syncretic culture, Buddhism and Tengrism. They practice essentially uh, elements of both uh, Buddhism and Tengrism. Islam isn't practiced by any Mongol today. There is a very small, tiny, fractional uh, Kazakh minority, I believe, who are ethnic Turks, not Mongolians. And they, those that small little population practices Islam in, inside Mongolia, but no Mongol practices Islam. The uh, Mongols who were part of the Ilkhanate, the Chagatai Khanate, the Golden Horde, etc., they intermarried with the local Turks and they adopted their culture and religion. So the Mongols were a polytheistic people. They still are a polytheistic people. Polytheistic people have no aversion to adopting elements of other cultures. They see everything as divine. That is the hallmark of polytheism and that is the biggest weakness of polytheism. There is too much tolerance and too much respect for others when the other side may not respect you back. So that's what happened in short. So these Mongols went to different parts of Eurasia in various Turkic regions, Central Asia, etc., Russia, they adopted whatever the local culture was. But inside Mongolia, there is no foreign religion. There is Buddhism, Hinduism combined and the Tengriistic practices of their ancestors. And in the Yuan Empire, which is now China, again, it is mostly uh, Buddhism, whatever is left of Buddhism because of communism. So that is what happened. All right, I hope that explains in brief uh, what the situation was like and what happened. Dungar Singh Johan says, you have said many times that our constitution is nothing but a copy of the West, which is based in facts. What I have said is based in facts. Study the Indian constitution and study the 1935 British Act that is the template on which the Indian constitution is based. And you will see and, and study the other constitutions of other countries in the, in, in the West and you will see so what I have said is based in hard facts. It is You can verify it right now if you wish, right? So I have said that our constitution is nothing but a copy of the West. It has been taken wholesale from the West and so on. 
but my teacher said it was a smart move from india that we have only taken the best part from the constitutions of many countries thereby making our constitution outstanding what are your views on this see do you know why india is a today a nation of low standards and mediocrity because our education imposes low standards and mediocrity upon among the students the indian education system promotes mediocrity and destroys talent if you pour more money into the education system of india it is going to produce mediocrity in larger numbers it is a mediocre system and our teachers with a few exceptions maybe one or two percent of our teachers are good but the majority are mediocre people they are themselves mentally colonized they are teaching us wrong history and they actually believe that fake false distorted history to be the correct history of india they are mentally colonized and therefore they worship the indian constitution they don't think they simply memorize and then they regurgitate what they've memorized there is no process thinking process going on inside some of them have it but they, those are very few and far between so therefore we have to be very careful about what our teachers are telling us don't believe it a teacher is not a guru we make the big mistake of considering our teachers to be gurus our teachers are service providers the moment you stop paying them your monthly fees they're going to stop teaching you a guru is a guru for life they will never ask you for money that's a huge difference so please stop considering your teachers to be gurus and stop taking everything they say seriously you have to go through the education system today because you have no option so do it get your degrees and then forget everything you learned the real learning starts after you are out of the education system so please ensure that your mind is not destroyed with the during the time you are forced to be part of the education system keep your mind intact <clears throat> why did the michelson morley experiment fail the michelson morley experiment succeeded in disproving the hypothesis that there is a luminiferous ether that permeates the universe so the objective of the michelson morley experiment was to determine whether such a luminiferous ether exists or not so in the 18th 19th centuries etc uh, there was this hypothesis that there is a substance called ether luminiferous ether that permeates the universe interstellar space everything and it is the medium in which light wave propagates because light was considered to be a wave at the time today we know it's a wave particle duality photons and all that at that time there was no quantum mechanics so it was believed that light is a wave and as we know if you look at a lake a pond etc a wave needs a medium in which to propagate in which to travel and therefore the problem arose if there is vacuum in space then how does light propagate so this hypothesis was put forth that there is a substance called luminiferous ether that's, that's present across throughout the universe and it is this substance in which light waves propagate so the michelson morley experiment uh, was well, more than 100 years ago it was devised to either prove or disprove the presence of luminiferous ether it is an interferometer arrangement two arms at 90 degrees and the interference of the light waves in two different directions will tell you whether such a substance exists or not and the experiment was done multiple times i believe it was first done by these two individuals michelson and morley and they discovered that there is no luminiferous ether this theory had therefore to be rejected so it succeeded in disproving the presence of a luminiferous ether it was a very successful and uh, momentous experiment so i do not consider it to be a failure it was a big success in my opinion
<laughs> Abhishek says, let's dive into a hypothetical situation. If you are made the prime minister of the country for five years and given the supreme power of doing anything, what would be your five steps towards making India a superpower? Please take the question. You see, this information is classified. It is supposed to be secret information. <laughs> see, first of all, understand this thing. The prime minister of India doesn't have supreme powers in India. The prime minister has lots of limitations on his or her power. India is a, has a, this federal structure. The prime minister cannot interfere in the internal matters of states, for instance. Uh, for instance, they say law and order and security is a state subject. So there are so many limitations on the power that a prime minister has. A prime minister's hands are bound and tied in so many different ways. The judiciary will not let the center do anything. The constitution, the laws will not do the, let the center do anything. The media will try and interfere in everything. So you know what? The, the prime minister of the country doesn't have supreme power to do anything. So that is a myth. Understand that. And that situation is present everywhere. You know what conspiracy theorists say? They say that when you are elected as the president of the United States, they take you to a room where you get the privilege of meeting the people who really run the country and the world. And then you do what they say. So, you know, that's what conspiracy theorists say. And there may be a grain of or grain or two of truth in there. So the truth is that the Prime Minister of, of India does not have the supreme power of doing anything. If I had the supreme power of doing anything, I would decolonize the country. I would change the constitution, the laws, and so many things. I've spoken about these things lots of times. There is no secret in that. Okay, So that's what I can say. But please disabuse yourselves of the notion that the Prime Minister has the supreme power in the country. The Prime Minister has lots of restrictions on what he or she can do. <clears throat> Abhilasha says, Abhilasha says, uh, what is the story of the Rupkund Lake in the Himalayas? Why is this lake full of human skeletons? What happened there? So that's a very interesting story. Uh, this is a topic I could have taken up with Dr. Neeraj Rai. There was no time for that, unfortunately. Maybe I'll, I will have a discussion again in the future with him because he has worked on this, on this case. So if you go to this, uh, this lake in the Himalayas, in the northern part of India, it's a, it's a very cold region. It's it's like a small. Let, let's see what it looks like, Rupkun Lake. Uh, let me share my screen and uh, show you what it looks like. So as you can see, this is what the lake looks like. It's a shallow indentation in a valley in the Himalayas. It's it's all it's typically snowbound and frozen. It may uh, it may it's, it's the surface is typically frozen most of the year. But uh, in summer, I think it will become uh, the the surface becomes liquid, and you can see liquid water there. And what you find is a bunch of human skeletons there, lots and lots and lots of human skeletons in the vicinity of this lake, and they're still lying around. So Indian scientists, geneticists have tested these skeletons, and it is found that there were two events where people died in this region. And if you, if you examine the skeletons, you will find that they have a uh, structural defects in the skulls, typically in, on the top of the skull. So this indicates uh, that there was a sudden hail storm. What is hail? Hail is big pieces of, of, of snow, snowballs, not snow, but ice. Big pieces of ice that fall from the sky. It's a 
meteorolo- meteorological phenomenon. So it appears there was a sudden hailstorm that impacted these people. They were caught in the open and it seems to have killed these people. And there seems to have been two events of this happening. So one of the, so they have found that if you do the carbon dating of these of these dead bodies, the skeletons, one of these events was more than a thousand years ago. And one of these events was about 300 or so years ago, roughly. Okay, the exact details, dates, I don't remember. Look it up if you want. So there were two events. And both of these events has this pattern of skull injuries. So skulls were broken. There was this heavy hill, uh, fall, falling of hail, which killed these individuals. Now, when you do the genetic analysis, you find that the more recent event is a group of people who have two very divergent ancestries. One is a group of people who have Indian ancestry and one is a group of people who have foreign ancestry, Greek or Cyprus or something. I don't remember the exact details, but look it up. It's foreign ancestry. And these were groups of pilgrims who were going somewhere. So they were going on a pilgrimage and they were both caught. Both of these groups of people were caught in this region, in this Rupkund lake area. And they were killed by a sudden hail storm. So that is in brief. You can look up the literature and the the full story in various articles online. Dr. Neeraj Rai has been involved in this and in the future when I have him again, we will discuss this for sure. Very interesting case. Anvesha, Anvesha, um, sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. Anvesha Bermik says, uh, was ancient Somaras a psychedelic drug or, or something? From which plant was it derived? What was the Soma ceremony in Rigveda Gira? Please explain. Okay, look, I am not an expert in ancient ceremonies, so I will skip that part. And when it comes to Somras, there is a lot of debate and discussion about the identity of the plant uh, which was used to extract Somras. So Som is one of the major themes Somras in the Rig Veda. It is this plant, this this drink that gives you essentially superpowers of some kind. Before you go into battle, you drink Somras, it gives you like double the strength or something. So it is something that is extolled, its virtues are extolled. It is treated as a div- divinity. And we even have a day of the week, Somavar in Sanskrit, Monday. And Soma is was later considered to be the moon. So Somavar is the day of the moon, which is Monday. You see, Monday, moon day. So the European tradition derives from the Sanskrit Vedic tradition, essentially. So Somras, its identity is still not known. There are a number of hypotheses or theories about what it was. Some people say it was some psycho, psychedelic or psychoactive substance. You know what? If you get high on some psycho, psychedelic drug, can you go and do battle? Can you do warfare? Clearly not. If you are high, if you are imagining things, you can't perform well in battle, you'll be killed. So it was clearly not a psychoactive or psychedelic substance. Most likely it was some kind of performance enhancing substance. Something that may increase your blood pressure, your heart rate, and and it may give you an upsurge of adrenaline or something like that. For instance, if you are a gym goer, you know there is something called a pre-workout supplement, something you take 10 or 20 minutes before you go and work out. It, it boosts your, your blood pressure and your, your concentration and the adrenaline levels and all that. These drugs, these substances exist. They are all legally available. 
even in india so maybe somaras or the soma plant was something that had a similar effect on whoever consumed it so one theory says it was some kind of uh, maybe psilocybin mushroom or something which is available in india it grows wild another theory says that maybe it was the ephedra plant e p h e d r a ephedra which grows in north india kashmir um, and central asia etc but the truth is we don't know we still haven't been able to uh, pinpoint for sure what is the true identity of the plant from which somaras was derived so it is known that these this plant came in stalks long stalks and there was this pressing ceremony from which the juice or the ras was extracted and that is what was drunk and it 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 is something that warriors would partake of before they went into battle so that's what i can tell you about it we still don't know what is the true identity of the plant but it's something that needs to be researched and solved you know okay next question keshav says the maharaja of surguja killed thousands of tigers in his lifetime wasn't there any authority at the time who could have abolished this practice and prevented this from happening because of this these people or nation our national animal they came an endangered species so this individual the maharaja of surguja or whatever the hell this guy was he is known to have killed personally more than 1700 tigers i doubt if these many tigers are still alive in india so the truth is that these maharajas of these princely states they were nothing but puppets of the british i have said this multiple times and some people get upset about this people take this emotionally people take this personally these are simply facts after 1857 every single raja maharaja princely state that survived and was allowed to exist was allowed to continue existing was allowed to continue existing only as a puppet of the british as a servant of the british each of these maharajas or whoever it was had a british political agent in their darbar in their court and the british political agent was their boss and each of these princely states extract, extracted tribute and taxes from the from their people and paid that to the british without exception they were all puppets and slaves of the british some of them did this as a compromise so that they could keep on doing some good for their people we know the maharaja of travancore the royal family of travancore they hid the treasure of the travancore temple from the british so in that case i can say they were good people they compromised they became subsidiaries of the british in order to keep serving the people in some way so some of them were good people but this individual the maharaja of surguja is one of those degenerates who killed our own animals thousands of them so there are many such degenerate rulers in the princely states who essentially did nothing for the country and and hurt harm the country <coughs> excuse me so yeah so i would say the majority of these so called princely states were nothing but low level puppets the true kings and queens of india were all killed in 1857 and whenever they destroyed a princely state or a dynasty they would take some some uh, fringe element in that dynasty in that family and install that guy or that girl that man or woman as the ruler that's what the british would do that you will see happen over and over again 
whether it is manipur whether it is elsewhere you will see a puppet ruler being installed from the same family in order to give it some sort of legitimacy so yes uh, these people they destroyed our wildlife they killed off our tigers our 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 cheetahs we have not a single cheetah left in india today because of these people so it is essentially a british policy you can blame the british puppets the indians who were installed as british puppets but overall it is the british who did this why are their indian servants right okay let's take a couple more questions why is the chinese new year celebrated globally while the indian new year is not celebrated knowing its great benefits and all that see that tells you this demonstrates to you the fact that hard power always trumps soft power indians love soft power oh we have so much soft power if you have so much soft power why is your culture not celebrated globally why is there so much hindu phobia across the world and why is china respected so much despite everything they are doing it's because the world respects hard power not soft power understand that so the answer is very simple chinese influence chinese hard power economic power and military power and the image the chinese have constructed of themselves as as a powerful country so once you fear someone respect comes automatically nobody fears india today and therefore nobody celebrates indian culture as simple as that stop fetishizing soft power soft power is worthless unless you already have a significant amount of hard power once you have hard power once the world fears you your soft power will go everywhere it will be celebrated that's how it works rashika 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 dagar says isn't india somewhere the reason behind the industrial revolution in britain during the 1750s and 1800s because the major source of their revenue and resources was from india absolutely 100 100% correct rashika uh the industrial revolution was made possible because of the plunder from india the british had an unlimited source of treasure money gold wealth everything they wanted as much as they wanted it was a bottomless money pit that they had in their possession india and they extracted everything of value out of india and they used that to power the industrial revolution so like the americans had free land and free labor in the in, term, in the form of slavery the british had this free source of money and treasure and slaves which is india and they used that to empower and enrich themselves and that's what gave rise to the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution in britain and eventually it went across to different parts of europe and that's how the british became the number one country in the world and they created this british empire it is all on the back of indian treasure indian money indian plunder so you are 100% correct india is what powered and funded the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution in britain okay <clears throat> shivansh uh, shivansh says what is the root cause of unequal wealth distribution in india 
so if you ask your professors in colleges and universities your marxist professors they will say it is the indian society the unequal casteist brahminical patriarchal misogynistic indian society and the horrific inequalities that are the cause of the unequal wealth distribution in india and they will look at it from a certain perspective they are all lying to you they are inveterate liars the root cause of unequal wealth distribution in india is the past 1000 years of foreign occupation of india the foreign occupiers were first the turks and then the europeans essentially the british they destroyed the foundations and the structure of indian society indian society evolved over thousands of years maybe 10000 years maybe 20000 years we don't know we have lost the details it's been around for at least 10000 years now indian society evolved organically it is overall from the biggest perspective from the largest perspective a civilization and inside this enormous civilizational umbrella there are lots of local plural manifestations of culture very diverse manifestations of the same overall culture and society essentially was very much the same across india it was democratic at the lower levels and it had a uh imperial structure or 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 had a monarchical system at the at the topmost level that's what we had and there was no capitalism there was no exploitation of the environment and everybody and and if you look at the gdp etc you can say that we had very high levels of prosperity and all that right and we had our own system in which uh, of of uh, of division of labor and all that which has been uh detailed exhaustively in the arthashastra and various other texts so what you find is that there was a very clear system of taxation 25% maximum one quarter of everything everything else belongs to the people and whatever tax was uh, taken by the government was used for the welfare and the national interest and the defense and the culture and etc of the country and the people so that's how it was and you had industries india was the first fully urbanized fully industrialized civilization in the world now what happened is that these foreigners they came up into india they sucked out all our wealth they destroyed the foundation and structure of indian society they imposed various uh, things that came from outside they imposed all their negativity all their barbarism on us which is now here to stay apparently looks like right and they demonized india and so on and so forth and what the british did after they destroyed the maratha empire what the british did is that they created classes of collaborators in india if you see my previous videos you will know who they are and after the transfer of power in 1947 the same people who had benefited from british largesse and british preferential treatment the people who had become rich during the colonial era they remained in positions of power and they are the ones who are still ruling india so all the old industrial houses all the old all the so called old money in india is actually stolen money from the people of india and that is the root cause of all the unequal wealth distribution of in, in india the british stole the land they stole the wealth they imposed the rayatwari system that stole the land of all the people in india everybody in india was forced into all their industries were destroyed their lands were usurped by the british and then they were forced to indulge in subsistence farming on their own land which was no longer their own land 
and that's what caused these systematic famines hundreds of famines at least 100 million indians were killed systematically deliberately in these artificially engineered famines and some people were allowed to become rich as long as they served the british crown that is the root cause of unequal wealth distribution in india it's i am telling you in very very brief but look at the old records look at the history it's all recorded it's not all recorded much of it is hidden is hidden but if you know where to look you will find the evidence of all of this that's what i can say okay let's take one last question for today prakriti verma says is it true that the greatest of all time goat warriors and conquerors like chinggis khan napoleon tutankhamun and ashoka had a phobia of cats good god good god a phobia of cats how scary Okay, let's take the 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 example of Chinggis Khan, Shri Chinggis Khan, the great greatest conqueror of all time, and a great friend of India. If the only reliable information we have about about Shri Chinggis Khan comes from a text called the Secret History of the Mongols, it is the only authentic source of information about his life that was written by the Mongols by his own family, right? if you and this is available publicly you can look up a translation and you can even look at the original text if you like if you know how to read the mongol language and you will see no mention of the word cat there <laughs> so there is no record of him ever having had a phobia of cats this man conquered half the known world or more than that you think he had a phobia of anything <laughs> does it make any sense napoleon no record of him having had any phobia of cats tutankhamun they worshiped cats in egypt king ashok i don't know of any record of him the only records we have of king ashok are from the uh, inscriptions and rock edicts of ashok is there is is the word cat mentioned there no so these are all fabrications and creations And, and stories that were created and fabricated much later on what's the purpose of all this i have no idea but it's it's just a joke nothing more than that that's what i can say all right my dear friends thank you so much for your questions i will end here so we're going to continue doing this and we're going to continue doing uh, lots of podcasts and tomorrow we will do another q and a session same time same channel tomorrow i'm going to bring back the video chat so i'm going to Uh, share a video link that you can use to join the chat and i'm going to speak to as many of you as possible take one question each from all of you so if you would like to appear here and have a one on one uh, face to face interaction with me please come tomorrow and come armed with your best question all right thank you so much everybody for your viewership for your support for everything i'm very very grateful always thank you so much take care and i will see you tomorrow bye